On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Daniel Peterson about Friedrich Schleiermacher. So we cover all sorts of topics like who in the world is this guy? What are his distinctive ideas? What are the general motivations for his thought compared to those who are thinking around his time? Have later Protestants appraised him fairly? Why would someone find his ideas desirable or appealing or convincing or potentially repulsive? How is he similar or different to more traditional Protestant thought? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to explain that is to encourage and remind you of things like an intellectual culture or creating an intellectual culture of sorts, things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think in our age, especially the internet age, there's far too little charity and curiosity in what other people think and why they think it. That includes living figures and dead figures. I mean, I find out all the time, you hear a trope about somebody long dead, and then you go read all their stuff and you realize that's actually not the whole story. I want to know more of the logic of why they're thinking it. And so I think there's a, a great virtue in a sort of healthy curiosity, not the vain curiosity that just seeks whatever for no good, but actually seeking sort of like the rationale for why people think the way they think. Because most of the time you'll find out, oh, there's actually reasons for why they, they think that. And we talk about a cheerful confessionalism and not just a confessionalism. Because we think that confessionalism is more than just right doctrine. It's an entire posture toward uh, what we think of as sound doctrine. So we think of that almost like as a mini-culture itself. And I think too many guys especially are attracted to the sort of ideas of confessionalism because of the precision rather than um, the sort of like the charity that should be built into that. So they're just trading one fundamentalism for another. So we think of confessionalism in a cheerful sense to try to represent that it's calm and it's confident in its beliefs, and therefore it's unafraid to link arms with other Christians, and it's not afraid to sort of uh, to spar in a healthy way with others who disagree. So that's a long way of introducing the show. I'm excited to talk to you guys, or talk to Daniel Peterson today, about Friedrich Schleiermacher. So I imagine a lot of you guys who listen, or women who listen, know of Schleiermacher, but probably don't have a good sense for like who he actually is, what he actually taught, I mean, if you read, uh, you know, 19th, 20th century, I guess, um, reform dogmatics like Herman Bovink, you see Schleiermacher all over the place. I've read Corey Brock's sort of Bovink's uh, usage and interaction with Schleiermacher, but I don't have any firsthand experience with him. So uh, given his extreme downstream impact, um, I think the only thing I really know for certain is he talked about sort of like the feeling of absolute dependence. So this is going to be fun. Daniel, tell me a little bit about yourself. If you're a regular listener, you've already heard Daniel before talk about modal collapse, but give me that same bio again before we jump into thinking like, who is Schleiermacher? Why did you even care about it sort of thing? Yeah, uh, I, I'm a theologian at the University of Aberdeen, a uh, research fellow in systematics, and um, I do Schleiermacher as my center and focus of my research, although many things reaching out from there. And that's one of the reasons I got interested in um, modal collapse questions and other sorts of stuff. And I do a lot of philosophical theology here. Awesome. And if you don't know, I think Daniel's pretty cool. I think uh, we, 
It's funny. I think we have differing intuitions on different things, but we really connect pretty well. Uh, I mean, we were talking for like 15 minutes before we even recorded this, just having fun talking about different stuff. And I, I, I think that's just so cool to be able to connect with people. And you have different intuitions on things, and yet you still have this sort of like connection. So I'm excited for this because I think it's going to be fun. A lot of these interviews, you can tell, I think, when you have – there's sometimes there's like some – I know I'm just getting off topic here, but there, you can tell in different interviews, some people just really have the it factor sort of thing. And I think Daniel's one of those guys. So you, you should stay tuned for the whole thing is what I'm trying to tell you. So tell me a little bit about Schleiermacher. Who is he? Uh, give me a little bit of his context so we can at least place that because I know we do have listeners. Like uh, my co-host Brandon asked you, his, his grandma is a faithful listener. She's probably going to have no idea who Friedrich Schleiermacher is. Good. Well, um, I'll start off basic. Uh, let me say for most of your listeners, he's just the bad guy. No, wait, hold on. I want to rewind. <laughs> he's, he's more complicated. Um, I hope I can, I hope you stay tuned long enough to maybe at least hear why he's the bad guy, um, or may, may or may not be a bad guy. So he's, he's known as the father of modern theology, or sometimes the father of liberal theology, or sometimes the father of modern Protestant liberal theology or whatever, you know, but he's a clearly a turning point in the, in the history of theology. And you can't do theology after Schleiermacher without engaging him, I think. That doesn't mean agreeing with him, but you have to engage him. Um, I, I had a, a supervisor, doctoral supervisor years ago who used to say that Schleiermacher is one fire through whom every theologian must pass. And I do think that there's, like, for better or for worse, and I think mostly for better, um, he's worth engaging for people of a huge variety of interests. He will challenge, inspire, all sorts of stuff. And he's so everywhere that you don't know he's there. So basically the division of modern seminaries and universities, including not just in, um, uh, in Europe, but especially in America, is basically his doing. So he invented the, dis the distinctions and divisions, you know, the um, biblical studies, historical theology, practical theology, all the kind of current and modern divisions. Those wouldn't have been found in a medieval university. And he basically puts those together as part of co-founding the University of Berlin. Uh, and you see the structure of the faculty, faculties and various other things at modern universities, including non-theological universities that take that form. Uh, uh, the way that, for example, dis different disciplines relate to each other. You also see the e emphasis on philology and uh, kind of uh, a certain sort of historical critical study of the Bible to get at its meaning. So, He's not going to be interested in the, um, uh, in at least not personally interested in the uh, commitmentless historical study of the Bible. I mean, for him, that's a d discipline of the church. But all those tools that you would have been taught, all the all the philology, he's going to be instrumental in that. Obviously, he's not the only person doing it, but he's one of the main figures uh, popularizing it. He's a uh, as just a side job. He happens to be the premier German translator of Plato. So he's the Benjamin Jowett of Germany. Um, if, you read, if, you read if you read Plato sorry, in German today, you're still reading Schleiermacher's translation in most cases. Maybe in all cases, I can't remember. And, um, and he's still an authoritative secondary source in, Schleiermacher, I mean in, um, in Plato's scholarship. So he's had this huge, huge um, in academic influence. He was also an enormously popular churchman at his time. So when he died, there were more than 100,000 people who attended his funeral. The city of Berlin shut down. The king lent dozens of his carriages, and he was given a royal burial. 
I mean, he's basically, imagine the death of a president or Martin Luther King Jr., some enormous figure of social and political import. And he just did all this um, at the same time. <laughs> so it's kind of this amazing uh, um, multifaceted life where he brought together church life, academic life, and all sorts of facets of these and the political considerations of how, how state and church might relate to academy and all of that stuff in a single, in a single life. That's fascinating. I had no idea about any of that. So I, as you were talking, I recalled, which I don't know if this is accurate, so you tell me, Harry Emerson Fosdick, was he greatly influenced by Schleiermacher? Uh, yes. So, so that's where the, 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 the strain of Schleiermacher that goes to 20th century or late 19th and 20th century liberal theology, it, it, it inspired a lot of these people. They're very often not inspired directly Okay. But the very first works of Schleiermacher's to be translated into English were not his dogmatics, but his sermons, because he was known as a as a amazing preacher. Hmm. So I think those sort of things are, you know, we mentioned, is he the bad guy? I think a lot of people probably look at him as a bad guy, not because they've read a lot of him, but because of the people who are utilizing him in various ways. And I think of probably someone like Fosdick in my mind, at least in American context, is he's like a, a paragon villain of uh you know of traditional theology and so it, is that a fair way of looking at schleiermacher am i getting a trunicated view or is that really like a lot of what he's saying funneling there is correct and the same thing with bob who's to me he seems to be critically appropriating schleiermacher in some some interesting ways so he seems to be more appreciative of what he's doing and so maybe in some ways as his popularity grows, people might become less, hey, Schleiermacher's just a, the total villain. Maybe he's sort of like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of situation. So I'd be curious, the interpreters that we're getting here were, because were, I, like, for me, you mentioned he's everywhere. I haven't really read a lot of him. So, like, I guess all the stuff I know of him is being interpreted from other people. So are these interpretations correct, close, off the mark? So first, the historical bit. Basically, Schleiermacher has one real faithful student, Alexander Schweitzer, not Albert Schweitzer, Alexander Schweitzer. And he's the last, basically the last actual Schleiermacherian. Then there's lots of ways in which Schleiermacher um, finds influence, but nobody signs up for the bulk of what he's up to after Schweitzer. Instead, what we get is later 19th century figures that are kind of inspired by him. So that'll include people like Fosdick, and that'll include people, but that'll and that'll include people like um, uh, um, like von Harnack, right? But von Harnack would never be uh, Trelch, for example. But those folks are not dyed in the wool. They're not kind of um, towing any kind of party line. They're loosely associated or inspired, and they're often making decisions that are radically different than some of the decisions that Schleiermacher is going to make on key points. So basically, this is a game of telephone. You know, you just play in, play in school where you kind of give a message and send it around the room, and by the time it gets back to you, it's almost an unintelligible or unrecognizable version of the original message. And it's, for that reason, it's really worth actually reading the texts, which are enormously difficult, so a lot of people don't like to do it. So Von Harnack, you mentioned him. I think of him as like the, the generator of Helen, the Hellenization thesis. Is he getting that in any way from Schleiermacher, or is that his own doing? I think he's getting that from instincts in the Reformation. 
So there are wings of the Reformation that are very grouchy about classical influences on the Christian tradition, and there's wings of the Reformation that are quite happy with those. So Luther sometimes is one way, sometimes the other, sometimes, you know, but at his grouchiest moments, he sounds like von Harnack. Um, mm. You might contrast it with somebody like Zwingli, who is, you know, in On Providence, he says, Moses and Paul, Plato and Seneca, these I summon as witnesses. Right, he's including Plato and Seneca in the same list as Moses and Paul. Right, so you get a very different feel depending on kind of which flavor of the Reformation you're getting, and I, I it strikes me as a more distinctly um, a, a, an idiosyncratic project with that goes back quite a long ways, and probably further than that. Probably, you know, all the way back to you know Tertullian. Right, if we wanted to, you know, trace it all the way back. So yeah, okay, got it. That that's helpful. I. You know, I've got an axe to grind against Hellenization thesis. Uh, I don't like it, but that doesn't mean that you know I, I like to be charitable to everybody. You know, I can, I can, I get, I guess the instincts that can come, the the instincts that are driving something like that. I think it makes sense. Like we don't want to like allow different presuppositions to end up like corrupting the biblical witness. I just don't think that that's necessarily the case. But that's not the topic here. So let's let's talk. I mean, what distinctive ideas for Schleiermacher? He, the one like I mentioned, I think earlier, the feeling of absolute dependence. I think that's the only one that I really know of, and it's probably you know that's just a catchphrase. So that there's a lot of stuff going on there. So maybe you want to unpack that, or tell me about some other ones that I should be aware of or should know. Yeah. So just okay. So pulling back just a little bit, big picture wise. So there are these candidates for the ways of thinking about what piety is. So. Schleiermacher is interested in piety, first and foremost, rather than theology secondarily. He's going to get there. But first, he's interested in piety. So what makes for a good Christian? He's going to call this piety. And by the way, he's following Calvin in doing this, right? And he thinks that, so he's going to give a summa pietatis, right? Uh, Along the lines of what Calvin will offer also. Um, And by the way, he's a reformed, he's a reformed theologian of a family of reformed theologians. And I mean, he's got you know, perfect German reformed pedigree, basically, for a few generations. So um, the candidates at his time are, you could be a Kantian, and you could think religion is about ethics. And Schleiermacher says that this is the that this is characterizing a piety in terms of doing. Or you could be something more like a Hegelian and think religion is really about thinking. Um, and then the best Christian is the person who's best at thinking. Uh, and, and, so Schleiermacher characterizes these options as knowing or as, as doing and as knowing. Uh, and he doesn't think that they're adequate. And he doesn't think that they're adequate because um, on the one hand, the doing doesn't do justice to the way we suffer grace. Uh, so that kind of um, he gets kind of Pelagian worries about that and various other things. And then on the thinking, he is worried about the elitism. So famously, um, and as an alternative, he says he locates this in feeling. Now, he goes on to give a technical definition of, of this instead, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But Hegel, in response, just to give you a flavor of this, Hegel, in response uh, to Schleiermacher, they work at the same institution. Schleiermacher hires Hegel at the University of Berlin. So um, it's all they're all kind of frenemies the whole time. And uh, but, but Hegel, in response to Schleiermacher, says, well, Schleiermacher is right, the best Christian is a loyal dog. And Schleiermacher in response says, well, if Hegel's right, the best Christian is Hegel. And that is, <laughs> that's kind of the end of the argument, right? <laughs> and like, we all know how absurd that is. 
And so, I mean, Hegel, Hegel's theory, I mean, if you, if you go into that, that piety consists in thinking, or, uh, you know, is, is um, or at least is centered on it, then the best Christian is the philosopher of religion. That's Hegel's, Hegel's account. Schleiermacher thinks, no, but what about those, what about the illiterate members of my congregation? Or what about the children? Or what about the people that are so wise but never had an education? Or what about the people that love God and their foolishness? Or all these examples that we know from our own congregational lives and other things. What about those people? Um, no, piety must be something that's not uh, either thinking uh, either thinking or doing. It's got, a, it's got a lie in feeling. Now, he then gives a technical analysis of this. So he gives a kind of populist account or egalitarian account of piety, but then he gives a very strict account of how we ought to go thinking about it. So he's going to be quite, a, uh, he's going to give quite tight argumentation in his theology in an attempt to justify a kind of broad view of who counts as a good Christian. And he think, he defines feeling as a form of immediate self-consciousness. So it's not emotion. When you think feeling, most people go, oh, I feel sad or I feel happy or I feel down or I feel elated or whatever. He's not interested in that. That does connect to the immediate self-consciousness, but he's just saying basically people like to use the word feeling popularly. Let's say that, but what I really mean is immediate self-consciousness. Immediate self-consciousness is um, consciousness that is not mediated. So it's not conceptually mediated specifically. So, uh, and it's not objective. So you're not thinking about yourself as an object. It's kind of pre-critical consciousness. And he doesn't think that we have access to that kind of nakedly. He thinks it always comes packaged with moments, but it's what underwrites these moments. You might think of this as, uh, I would argue, I argue this interpretively for, for a variety of reasons, but you can think of it as a principle, right? So it functions as a principle. It's not something that's, um, it's not something that is made explicit. It's something upon which being made explicit depends. And it's the, and it's, uh, um, when it's present, uh, actively, it's the first principle of our lives. And that he thinks is the life of spirit. So he thinks that this sort of awareness, um, this sort of awakeness, and he gives us examples of consciousness being awake or asleep, or young children before they learn how to speak, right? So it's not something kooky. That doesn't have a wild view in mind. He literally means conscious or unconscious, right? So it's a kind of awakeness to God, is what he means, that underwrites the moments of our lives. That is then amenable to, inevitably, in fact, issues in both thoughts and deeds, and that is, a, is the subject matter that theology uh, principally reflects upon. So first, I think I sometimes forget all the giant Germans who are like alive in the same period of time and overlapping. And, you know, this, I guess that's just my own lack of historical knowledge or awareness to realize, wow, a lot of these great giants are like working together. So that's fascinating. Number two it seems the way you've articulated this isn't as, um, I, I guess, bad as what, in my mind, a lot of people seem to like take to the conclusion of, okay, Schleiermacher says X, therefore he ends up sort of jettisoning like doctrinal convictions or beliefs sort of idea. Because it seems to me like what I hear in, in most climate, if, if somebody mentions Schleiermacher, it's to denigrate him as all he really cares about is just this feeling this sort of like warm, fuzzy, like uh, authentic, you know, self-expression. I just feel God in this moment. 
to the denigration of all sorts of doctrinal content. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you believe. All that matters is that you just have this internal, like, warm, fuzzy feeling. That doesn't seem to be what you're explaining here. No. Um, why is it that we've gotten this sort of picture of somebody like Schleiermacher? There's a couple, there's a couple reasons. Um, one is a link back in history to Charles Hodge and the Mercersburg School. So folks are interested in that. Um, so Charles Hodge is another kind of frenemy of Schleiermacher's. So he goes and studies with, with Schleiermacher and others in Berlin. He thinks that he has to do this to be a good theologian. And he disagrees with him his whole life. But he, by the way, Hodge has some of the best summaries of Schleiermacher's theology in short of anybody. I don't always agree, but they're, they're so well done. They're impossible not to kind of find charming. And, um, but, he, but he's, just, he's trying to do a really good job because Schleiermacher is genuinely his friend. And he has an entire section uh, where he talks about, you know, cr critiquing Schleiermacher and then saying, but don't think for a moment that this guy's not in heaven. Right? This is after he's died. Right. Um, and and he's, you know, um, and sh much of Hodge's argumentation is either borrowed from Schleiermacher or designed to thwart him. Same thing with, again, with Bavink or with other figures that are going to borrow in part or, or, you know, take or leave a little bit. They feel like they have to argue because Schleiermacher's giving arguments. Nobody would have to say anything if he was not giving any anything if he wasn't offering anything persuasive. And the you know the Christian faith, the, his dogmatics, is you know seven hundred plus pages of argumentation. That's a lot of argumentation, and you know, and it's compact. It's not wasting a lot of time. So it, there's an awful lot to engage that's worth taking seriously, um, and in ways that. Yeah, you might not like. Uh, that's fine, but he might teach you something, even if you, even if by way of disagreement, because he wants to offer arguments, and he thinks that you can be brought along and or you could argue back. Like there's something very, there's something very honest dealing about the whole thing. So, uh, you mentioned figures like Kant and Hegel and others that he's sort of interacting with and thinking through. What what is the that main sort of motivating factor? that's really driving him to say, let's develop this sort of understanding of theology. Yeah, so one is so one is a, a kind of contemporary crisis of authority, right? So people are wondering, you know, the old, the, uh, just, just saying the Bible's inspired. It may be true, but in a context where that's exactly what's being questioned, it's not helpfully reassuring. Um, so, so Schleiermacher basically thinks the complaint is right that you need to offer a better grounding. Not that you need to replace Scripture, but that you need to offer a better grounding for the reliability of Scripture. He actually has a fairly high doctrine of Scripture. It's worth reading. Um, for example, he's a kind of inerrantist, <laughs> uh, but with a, you know, in a specific sense, right? Like he's going to offer this. So it's worth, just don't throw, just go read him before you get grump too grumpy. Um, but he, um, uh, he basically thinks, again, along the lines of Calvin, that scripture is only scripture if it's authorized by the spirit. That it's actually the spirit working in our hearts that makes scripture scripture for us. Otherwise, it's just, um, it's, it's not authoritative for us. It's not yet inspired in a way that can become ours. Uh, and so kind of playing off of that reformed heritage, sort of d developing it, uh, and, uh, and also thinking about other, other kind of puzzles and problems along the way. For example, how one could possibly pray without ceasing, um, or various things along these lines. He develops this account of, of um, the immediate self-consciousness as, as, as essentially, by, by, by the time we get into the middle of the Christian faith, we learn that 
This is really just his way of talking about, in generalities, of talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he just thinks that, the, that, that, the, uh, that this is the presence of God communicated through the preaching of Christ that lives in us and informs our lives. And that Christ didn't have to be a you know, grade-A genius with an IQ of 200 to be the Son of God. Uh, and so neither do we. And there were many things that Christ did, but there were also some things that he failed to do in life, or not failed to do, but didn't do, that's what I mean. Uh, and so it can't just be all ethics all the time, or all human action all the time. Uh, that he did what was that he did what was what was worthiest of him to do, but he didn't solve every little tiny problem of the world, and that wasn't his mission, and that doesn't have to be ours either. So while I'm thinking about it, if somebody does want to pick up a copy of the Christian faith, the best translation of that is I mean I just put it in Amazon to see what came up, and there's just one that's got a green cover. Yeah, so who is this? H.R. So McIntosh and yeah, J.S. So Stewart? That's the, that's the earlier translation, the first translation. It's fine. It's got some bits that are just completely in error. Um, they're hostile translators, so that's actually helpful if you're a skeptic. So basically, they're giving you the least, the least friendly version of the text to go with. And I think that that's, that's often maybe a good place to start for the kind of uncomfortable listener. You can try the new translation as well. It's often very hard to find. It's also okay. usually two or three times the price. And all both translations have to make decisions about where to break up sentences because it's one of these early 19th century German texts which have individual sentences which run more than a page long. So, so what? Yeah. And you, do you remember offhand like some examples of these hostile decisions that are being made to give me an idea of like what they're. I guess what translation decisions they're making. I don't know if they're if they're making bad translation decisions on because they're hostile, but I do know they're hostile. And you can okay. read you can read H.R. McIntosh's types of modern theology and hear him kind of gripe about Schleiermacher in it. He has Got a whole it. kind of gripey chapter. He's not a, he's not interested in he, he's interested in reading Schleiermacher and he's but he's gonna be kind of appreciative in certain respects, but he he's not interested on the whole. Got it. So when I think about Schleiermacher, what if if you're going to pitch him other than you know he's he's the guy that you've you've got to learn because everybody is being influenced him what are the reasons that he's most appealing to either a theologian or potentially a churchman what ways are is he most convincing in making arguments i uh, i'd be interested in hearing about that yeah so there's a whole bunch of reasons that may appeal to more people uh in different ways what got me most interested in, or not, maybe not most interested, but one of the centers of my interest are the way he de- ways he deals with problems in natural science. So his best friend, co-founder of the University of Berlin, is Alexander von Humboldt, who's like the German Darwin. Um, and so he's thinking about contemporary scientific problems, both with respect to um, life uh, and the life sciences, but also cosmology, fundamental forces, whatever. So if you're interested in thinking about how your faith can cohere with um, the discoveries in natural science, that's one of his main businesses. And it's not just natural sciences, it's also historical science. So for example, if you think, hey, I want to really be a faithful Christian, but I also want to take historical criticism seriously as a discipline, maybe not let it undermine my faith, but I want to add the two together, then he's the kind of person that could um, that could provide you an example, not the only way, but at least one example of how to do that successfully. So I think anyone with this kind of seminary training or, or, or similar or you know, graduate 
training or even undergraduate training that gets into some of those details could find resources. In terms of, in terms of content, um, I think it depends on the particular. And I think here it's better to kind of, you know, take what is helpful to you and leave what's less helpful. He's an enormously consistent, systematic thinker. He's probably the most self-coherent writer in the history of the church. So, um, and he's also, um, he's, he's writing and arguing in a style which we wouldn't find as familiar. But if you read him carefully, you'll notice how powerful his arguments are. Even if you think he's wrong, he's never wrong for the first reason you think he's wrong. <laughs> it's always one, you have to go a layer or two deeper to find where you think there may be a mistake or where you think you could really um, question a premise or a move of some sort. So I think he, he can teach you how to write a theology. He can teach you how to think theologically in a coherent way, but also how to argue about particulars. Very cool. Now, I want to know, what are the main areas you would say that he is different than sort of the Protestant reform stream that people might be familiar with of things like the English variety that you find in Westminster then you find in Savoy and other sort of streams that are more well-developed than the early Reformation. Yeah, good. So, I mean, the shortest way to describe uh, to describe Schleiermacher's program is that he's a four-point Calvinist. He's just not going to have limited atonement. So he's going to end up being universalist or a very universalist friendly. Um, now, he does actually have an account of reprobation, but it's a temporary affair. Um, and uh, so that will be co controversial. But a lot of people find that so, like a, a universalist yeah. in the in the sense of literally, like actually everybody gets saved, or uh, or like a hypothetical universalist where the atonement would save everybody if insert whatever clause. So this is this is a point of some scholarly debate. Um, but for tiny technical reasons, basically actual universalist. Got it. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, as he puts it. God sees everyone only in Christ. Okay. Right. So, um, and he thinks that this is effective and that this is a function of Christ's high priestly office. So the way he gets there is not by a kind of um, generic account of religion and it's all fine and it's all, you know, whatever. It's actually by a heavy duty monergism. Hmm. Right. So, um, so he's, you can see the, <laughs> him using the machinery of the reform tradition to disagree with it in various respects. So who is he drawing on to get to the more the universalist approach or bent? So again, because he's a because he's a basically he's also a kind of part-time classics scholar, he's able to draw on all of the tradition and he actively draws on all the fathers of the church um going back to the beginning and he cites them throughout the Christian faith and you can tell that he's read them. Um and he's drawing on a whole bunch of other other people um that are more contemporary as well. So we know, for example, that he's reading, um, you know, Gregory, right? <laughs> uh, and, and you know, these, these, these great patristic thinkers that end up saying something that sounds an awful lot like that too, you know? Or, or we know that he's reading Origen. We know that he's reading, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a whole range of early, of early uh, Irenaeus, right? These are, these are enormously important thinker, thinkers for him. So patristics and indeed um, 
both medieval and Reformation-era scholastics are widely cited in the Christian faith as people he's engaging. Got it. Now, how does someone like Bart end up utilizing or not utilizing Schleiermacher in his own program? Yeah, so so one of my friends put this well the other day, that Bart's, Bart's thinking on Schleiermacher is great advice that Bart never took. Um, <laughs> Which is, Bart says, basically, you're not entitled to, to, to um, be grumpy at him if you haven't first appreciated him. The way he actually puts it is, you're not entitled to hate here if you haven't first loved here. Hmm. Um, and, who, and the person is not entitled to criticize here who's not prepared to love and love again. Now, does Bart execute? Probably not perfectly, right? Uh, but I do think by the end of his life, especially Bart saw that his program ended up looking an awful lot like, more like Schleiermacher's than he thought. And I think the, dif- the difference is because Bart was dealing with people influenced by von Harnack and Trelch and others. He wasn't actually dealing with Schleiermacher. Yeah. Okay. I, I think Kevin Hector is, does a lot of stuff on Schleiermacher. How would you differ in his approach to thinking about Schleiermacher? Are there unique emphases that you would say, oh, I think he's a little bit off on this or he's right on spot on this and he's just really good and I just haven't done a lot of work there? Yes. So uh, I think that um, Kevin's vision of, I think, I think, I don't think Kevin is, necess- I, I hate to speak for him, but I would, I would just guess for a moment. I don't think he's trying to always be an interpreter of Schleiermacher, but a deployer of Schleiermacher. So how can I use Schleiermacher's in- insights to do some work, which I think is a noble thing and people are, should feel free to do it. Uh, it's slightly different than sort of trying to get Schleiermacher right. Um, so, so his constructive projects, which I think are really interesting, are taking instincts in Schleiermacher's thinking and redeploying them. So for folks who don't know, um, Kevin wants to give a kind of um, random, inflected, Wittgenstein-inflected account of social, uh, a social practical account of, um, of uh, doctrine uh, uh, and th- that... Um, that allows us to both have a kind of consistency and revisability within what we're thinking um, theologically. I think I think that's right to to a great degree with Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher really does read at many points like a kind of um, proto Wittgenstein. So if you want a way if you want a way of thinking about him, yeah, it's a little obscure, but Wittgenstein wasn't an idiot, and you know, uh, it did give arguments, even though he might have given them in ways that not everyone was giving them. So given the influence of Schleiermacher, you know, you mentioned how he helped, I guess, co-found the University of Berlin. Are, are there other active institutions that sort of have the spirit of Schleiermacher still active? And because and, I, I think a lot of just most institutions have some sort of historical figure that's almost like driving their program from the dead in some sense. So I'd just be curious, like, who is still trying to execute in that sort of vision? So I don't know if that there's there's not an institution whose branding reflects Schleiermacher in quite the same way, um, but I but I do think that besides all the kind of institutions that have been associated, I mean Schleiermacher is widely studied in Germany, as you might not be surprised to learn, but mostly not as a theologian, mostly as a philosopher or a philologist or a politician or a herme- hermeneuticist. Oh yeah, Schleiermacher invented the discipline of hermeneutics. I mean he coined it. Obviously, people were interpreting things before that. But Schleiermacher coins hermeneutics and writes the first book called Hermeneutics about hermeneutics. So if you're ever interested in interpretation, <laughs> you might find him, in, you know, interesting. Um, but but um, there's people that are interested in these auxiliary areas theologically uh, of Schleiermacher's. 
the English-speaking world does more on the theology, uh, on the theology proper. And probably the best place in the world right now to do it is Aberdeen. So I have four or five colleagues that do something Schleiermacher related. I mean, that are significant, who are significant Schleiermacher scholars doing something Schleiermacher related. Um, and including Bruce McCormick, who we've, who we've recently brought on, brought on board. So we've got a pile of really um, a kind of a great concentration. Now, many of them are actually Bardians, right? That's their sort of day job is to be Bardians. And so I think that tells you something about the Bardians who went and actually read this and were like, oh, hold on. <laughs> this guy was supposed to be the enemy. But as soon as I keep reading, I discover something different than is necessarily being reported. Yeah, Interesting. So you mentioned in an email to me about him and his thoughts on modal collapse. So if you've listened to the episode, then you've got a good context for that. If you haven't, then I just say go listen to it and then come back to this one and you can keep keep up with the conversation. I'd be curious, You did you say to me, I can't recall that he would say, yeah, modal collapse, that's it. it. It is what it is. Who cares? It's not just that who cares. He wants it and he mm. wants it. Um, not to get rid of simplicity. He wants simplicity to get a modal collapse. Um, Why? Because he thinks that once we learn what God is determinately in history, in the revelation of Christ, that the only way we know who God is necessarily is if we know that God couldn't have been or done otherwise, and not in any other sense otherwise. So the Christian faith concludes with the doctrines of wisdom and love. And with a modal collapse, you get a state where, or you get a, you get a set of circumstances where for any, for any truth, it's contradiction, or it's, it's contrary implies a contradiction in just the same way as a triangle with four sides is a contradiction. And he wants to conclude the Christian faith by saying that God is love and its opposite implies a contradiction. So to think that God is not love is like thinking of a square circle. So couldn't someone, though, say, well, yeah, I'm fine with that. Like, I, I want to say that God's nature is necessary, but that still gives me some level of, like, I could still pick between chocolate ice cream and strawberry ice cream, and that wouldn't have any bearing on God being loving in any sense. Yeah, so, you know, maybe. I mean, um, there are certain choices which would surely have a bearing on God, on God being loving. Um, for example, if you pick the strawberry ice cream to give to your friend who's allergic to strawberry ice cream, you might not be the sort of person who could be described as loving anymore. So there's going to be a whole range of choices and a whole range of... It, I mean, Schleiermacher thinks the object of election is the universe, which includes Christ and everything else. Um, so he thinks that this is one conceptually... Um, enwrapped whole so it's gonna he's gonna subscribe to um, a heavy-duty version of the doctrine of conceptual containment uh, what is the doctrine of conceptual containment so that so basically he's going to refuse the distinction between an analytic and a synthetic truth uh, so so for example um, uh, this comes out of a long tradition but including especially people like Leibniz are famous for it so Leibniz says in his in his dispute with Arnaud, who's a, uh, the Jansenist, um, Arnaud says to Leibniz, "Hey, I could I could have been born in Lyon, and that wouldn't have been made a big difference." And Leibniz responds, "If you, if you were born in Lyon, you would not have been Arnaud. So who it is to be you 
so that, uh, your individuation and identification are specified by the totality of all the predicates that it could ever be applied to you, which include all your relations to everything in the universe and God. So this is a solution, by the way. This is how you can get out of hexaity stuff. Uh, so you don't have to you don't have to talk about there being a thing that makes me me. That's a secret hidden thing. If you can have a person be kind of exhaustively triangulated by all these predicates and and relations. I mean, isn't that some in some sense like a version of like a myriological essentialism, where like every like literally everything's necessary for your personal identity? Yeah. Which to me that just seems deeply unintuitive. I to say yeah. That. I I don't I don't think he's I don't know how many arguments from intuition are there. I think that the arguments okay. the argument goes what we the arguments are that the intuitive parts of the brackets that we find intuitive that God is love and that we yeah. we are immediately self conscious of depending on on God absolutely. Now, as soon as we recognize that we depend upon absolute God absolutely, we recognize we don't depend upon anything else, and that God is a sort of self-explaining explainer, and then we've got a kind of heavy-duty version of monotheism up and running, uh, and from that, Schleiermacher is going to follow much of the classical tradition and think that just entails simplicity. So, on, on this account, then, it seems like creation is necessary. Necessary and free. So Schleiermacher is going to go straightforwardly with Spinoza on this. Okay. And Spinoza's argument is really fun in these conversations because Spinoza thinks that actually God is only free if what God does is necessary. Hmm. Because the contrary of it uh, is that either God's will is turned by something external Mm -hmm. or that God's will is inessential and therefore not properly God's. So the only way for those two problems to be avoided is if God's will is just God's essence, and that will is as absolutely necessary as God's essence. And and um, in debating some of the some of the modal collapse stuff, I've gone to some length to pointing out ways I'm not quite sure they land their punches quite yet. One of the ways they might one of the ways critics of, of simplicity might do that more is by trying to argue against the distinctions of things that are conceivable in themselves. Schleiermacher, following Spinoza on this point, thinks that things are not conceivable in themselves apart from God. So that basically, if you want to understand absolutely anything, you can you have to understand it under God as a first principle and then go down the kind of conceptual ladder. And by the way, that's exactly what Plato teaches. By the way. So it's not just Spinoza. You can find this in lots of uh, in lots of accounts, right? This is the unhypothetical first principle stuff. So... Um, yeah, so once you think that, and you think you have to, in order to understand something, you have to understand the things in, in which it is conceptually contained, then I think you do have a way of talking about, um, uh, a way of, of arguing successfully that the modalities can become completely transitive. Hmm. On the other hand, Spinoza and, and Schleiermacher both are going to just say, well, that's it, but that's immaterial for the question that theologians are worried about, which is dependence. So actually, everybody's been worried about alternatives, but what we really really care about is relations of dependence, and those are entirely independent of questions of modality, of questions at least of the logical necessity stuff. So so it's just all a red herring, and he's delighted to have the positive consequences and doesn't really mind at all to have the negative consequences. In fact, he wants them, but what what others 
see as the negative consequences. They're part of his positive consequences. So this, this is all fascinating. And I, there's, I want to, in a sense, I want to go back a little bit to the universal question because, yeah, yeah. I, or universalism, just because I know that's going to be probably the main pain point. Fair enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, uh, people who listen to this podcast anyway. And how, would he be fine? I mean, is it just like, yeah, universalism is true. And I think some people might go to something like the Apostles Creed and say, you know, an article of the faith is, you know, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, forgiveness of sins. And I guess, is he just going to interpret that? Um, well, no, here it is. For there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I guess, well, maybe is the interpretation just like, yeah, he's going to do all that. It's just everybody's going to have everlasting life in heaven. And well, that's yeah, I mean, that. How are, how are um, I mean, you know, tr- well, first of all, let me just backtrack for just two seconds about the necessity stuff, just to say one last, because yeah. I, I realized there was one thing I forgot to say, which is just that notice that, that, that sh- the account Schleiermacher is giving is the hardest nosed account of election one could possibly give. Right. So instead of thinking him as a kind of um, a wimpy feelingsy guy, you can actually think of him as a kind of um, reformed thinker turned up to an 11, right? I mean, in some ways, what he's doing is is turning up the stakes and turning up the volume. Um, so it's worth noting the continuities here, even as some of the decisions might strike us as odd. Or well, now all my Armenian listeners just threw Schleiermacher in the trash. Well, but that's the great thing is he makes no one happy because he's just not pinnable, right? Like, so everyone yeah. thinks, oh, yeah, this guy's a kind of proto-process guy. Ooh, oh, oh, honey. You know, yeah. wait, wait till I break it to you, right? Or whatever, right? Like, so, so you, um, but, but on the, on the, um, uh, but he's going to agree with Wesley, by the way, on the, on the, on the uh, universal scope of atonement, right? And he's, and he grew up with Moravians who are the same people that got Wesley to convert, right? So there's, there's a direct lineage to both Reformed and Wesleyan traditions that, that kind of um, dovetail in him, Uh yeah, but he's going to be—he's going to have a Calvinist doctrine of election with a Wesleyan doctrine of atonement, and that'll make maybe no one happy. But at least you can see the appeal, or you can see the reasoning, right? So, um, but but um, how you were talking about to judge the living and the dead? So, so some sort of uh, let's just pick a kind of generic kind of Orthodox Reformed thinker. They think that we are. that Christ is judged in our place and that the way we are to endure the judgment of God is by the vicarious judgment um, that carried out in history and then at the last in the last judgment um, finalized in in Christ in our place so all you have to answer that question is to repeat the answer Schleiermacher can say something very similar Right. Uh, and indeed, anybody who wanted to, to open. And this is exactly why, by the way, Zwingli is tempted to be a universalist in his in his writings, because he reads once for all. And he has this doctrine of election. He's got this once for all stuff. And that sounds an awful lot like, you know, that's what, where the road may lead you. Now, again, as I've said, though, Schleiermacher is not kind of. Um, he's less clear about where he wants to land on all this than about the problems with landing elsewhere. So there is a debate about it, but I think it's, to me, it's pretty clear. So I'll just yeah. say no, it I mean, that, that makes sense. So then what does he do? I don't want to spend, like, obviously, well, we haven't spent all our time on this, so I don't mind asking. <laughs> he, what does he do with all the texts where Jesus is talking about, you know, hell? Is he saying, well, no, that's just a metaphor, or is that, you know, it's really a place, but no one goes there? What, what's going on there? 
Yeah, I mean, he's pretty he's pretty brisk about dealing with the texts in the Christian faith. So he'll deal with them in commentaries or in other, you know, other places. But he, yeah, he just thinks that they do not require you to think that this is a place of um, eternal conscious torment. Okay. And he thinks that annihilationism is barely any help. Hmm. Like maybe it's better than hell, but meh, right? Like that actually most of the in principle objections to hell apply to annihilationists that's more humane no doubt in some ways i mean people kind of you know obvious it's kind of a, on a, but um but many of the in principle objections to 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 um to hell apply to annihilationists except that annihilationists lose out on the uh, on a certain sort of divine justice right so they're he, they're trade-offs and he's just going to think that that's not that's not particularly appealing he gives yeah. a really interesting argument about this which you'll find i believe repeated in david bentley hart um, maybe that's another point at which listeners turn turn off the show. But um, but but it, just so you know, um, uh, people borrow these arguments. You'll hear them around. And it's worth knowing, even just to get the joke, where they come from. So Schleiermacher gives an argument against uh, against hell from sympathy, and the argument is this: he thinks that the content he thinks that Christian redemption has content that it that it means something. And part of the content of it is greater and greater love for all people. Uh, and he thinks that in heaven, that content will be perfected. Hmm. So that we have maximal neighbor love, right? The m- maximal love for all people. And this issues, um, th- or, or takes the form of maybe, sympathy. So um, weep with those who will weep, which rejoice with those who rejoice. And... And therefore, the, the joy of others in heaven will add to our joy. But conversely, any, the sufferings of anyone would detract from our joy as we shared in their suffering. Because we, un, so this is going to be where he, for example, really parts ways with someone like Aquinas, who thinks that part of the joys of heaven is getting to watch the sufferings of the damned, right? Um, mm-hmm. which, is a, a, which is a kind of strong counter view. And he thinks, no, that actually, basic, um, he thinks that because our sympathy is, our love wraps up our good with others, that we can't enjoy heaven while anyone else is in hell. And that if anyone were to be in hell, therefore, we would all be. If we were in fact redeemed, our, our greater love for all people would result in, in increasing suffering over eternity as they were not happy. And you might not think that's right, but... It's sure food for thought, I think. And it would be interesting to think why it's wrong, right? Just as a pedagogical exercise. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's challenges that it kind of cuts to such a basic claim and what we might think would be such a natural um, entailment of neighbor yeah. love. I mean, I guess my, my natural gut reaction at that point is to say, well, let me point out the extreme cases where it seems like there's a pretty solid like the Hitlers of the world. We all we don't don't like them. They they seem to have like gone beyond sort of like a I don't know where Paul he talks about like in first Timothy one or he's talking about like this sort of like obstinate sort of characteristic. Um or and I think he talks about somewhere else where I think people would say, well there there must be some like line or once you cross it then you're outside the pale and if if you admit of that scenario then it seems like you've opened the floodgates to the whole thing and the 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 sort of idea would have some incoherence 
somewhere within it. Yeah, so that's that's a great a great um, kind of um, uh, test case, right? Yep. And that's exactly where Hodge ends up having to go, because uh, he's hugely persuaded by Schleiermacher's argument, but is like, ah, but you know, not Hitler because he's not a time because Hodge yeah. is not a time traveler. But there are cases of egregious evil, right? Um, and and Hodge ends up saying at the end of his systematics that the number of the finally damned will be um, if like just impossibly small. So he's gonna mm-hmm. he's gonna be a predestinarian, but he just thinks that the number of people in hell is like there's ten of them, like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, <laughs> right? You know, or whatever, and that's it, right? Like he's got you know, and but it's part that's part of Hodge's response to this argument from Schleiermacher uh, because he because he kind of feels the moral force, but he can't say no; these huge baddies just kind of yeah. get away with it. Schleiermacher is here going to is going to go more with the patristics. So, but he's he's going to offer a kind of he's kind of vague about it. But it's sort of like a Protestant purgatory, or it doesn't have to be over time, right? It's not like another realm you have to sort of travel through. Don't think Dante here, but like the idea is back to the kind of patristic notion of you'll be stripped of evil, and the more evil you are, the more painful that will be. Um, you'll be made good, and it might not be fun at the moment being made good for the most evil. Yeah, well, this is fascinating. So. Yeah. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me with about, about this. Remind me where uh, listeners can go to keep up with your work. I know you, you mentioned you're at Aberdeen, so maybe the website there is the best place to go. Yeah, and I have a couple books. One of them is Silly Expensive from, uh, from a German press uh, on um, Schleiermacher on God and Natural Science. Uh, but your, your library could probably get it or various things like that. If you have a theological library, it's exactly the sort of thing that they would, that they would carry. And then also I have another book out... Um, Schleiermacher's Theology of Sin and Nature on Schleiermacher's very controversial and I think really interesting account of sin and sin's origins and evil. So it directly relates to this. And that's out in paperback for kind of a relatively humane, I don't know, $35 or something like that, depending on where you can find it. So those are the main things. And, um, you know, we're around and look us up. We're always doing interesting things in theology at Aberdeen. And not everyone agrees with me here. So if you don't like this, don't don't uh, don't foreclose (laughs) on the department. Well, two things. Number one, if you're listening, I'll make sure to link to the books in the show notes so you can just click the button and it'll take you right there to Amazon or wherever, and you can buy the books from wherever you prefer to buy them. I know a lot of you nerds don't like to go to Amazon because you don't want to support the big box, whatever, uh, but there's also the the reality of, yeah, I like the two-day shipping and the, the cheap prices, so it's a that double-edged sword because all the people who like to buy these sort of books don't make money. Um, the second thing I want to mention is I love UK programs because there really is a lively sort of intellectual culture. Every institution I've been at has this same sort of ethos. I don't know what it is. So yeah, I think um, never been having been to Aberdeen, though I went to Scotland once, and it was freaking awesome. So if anything is like Edinburgh, uh, then you know I, I'm I'm a Scotland believer. So just I would recommend going and checking it out. <laughs> yeah, well, we encourage people who are interested to you know look our way. We have a lot of uh, great stuff happening here. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think one of uh, my favorite professors, I think Jonathan Pennington, did he? I think he went to Aberdeen. Maybe he went to Saint. I get confused of a- Aberdeen or Saint Andrews. You know, I'm gonna Google it right now while we're here on the show before I forget because. Um, Google's amazing. You can probably hear me type. And let's click before we close up. Dr. Pennington, he he went to St. Andrews. Dang it. Okay, well. Well, no close one's enough. perfect. Yes, I you know, that the mistake is mine. <laughs> um, still well, we work great with our with our colleagues around and I mean, 
Scotland's a, a, a you know a big country, a beautiful place, but kind of a small place in terms of people. I mean, it's about the population of Greater Houston. So that's wild. Uh, so it's it's easy to get to know people <laughs> all over the the country. Very cool. Well, I appreciate you, Daniel, taking the time to talk with us about this. I do commend you all to check out the, the resources. Thanks, and Jordan. as you know, you've been uh, listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.